Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and this is a special edition of the Hanover House. So this is our monthly episode that we intend to bring in somewhat, sometimes friends, sometimes new acquaintances. In this case, uh, a dear friend, Jesse Owens, Dr. Jesse Owens, who's at Welch College, to discuss some of his dissertation on the Salters Hall controversy. And if you're not familiar with the London Lyceum, so typically every Wednesday we have an episode come out where we talk to an expert in the field about some theological sort of topic, and we're always trying to develop certain virtues. And some of those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. That's not all we want to focus on, but we've just sort of tried to, I mean, be nerdy Baptists and put, you know, four C's together and say, hey, let's let's try to create a culture that is, um, I like to think of it as trying to distill what James 3 teaches us about the wisdom that is from above, that is open to reason, that's gentle, that's kind, that's merciful. Those sort of things are what we're trying to promote with the podcast. And then we have this monthly episode, The Hanover House, where we bring together a couple other guys from the London Lyceum. So it's not just me and Brandon. It's uh, also Jake Stone, who's here, and Garrett Walden. And there's a couple other brothers who are here and there. You know, just it's hard to get everybody together. So tonight, um, I'm very excited because both Jake and Garrett are Baptist nerds and way smarter than I am. So they'll ask better questions than I do. So I guess, Jesse, you've been on the show before. I'll let you introduce yourself for, you know, a couple seconds to tell me a little bit about you. But the first thing I want to know after you do that is just give me a couple minute sort of summary, lay the land on just what is the Salters Hall controversy? Because for somebody like me, before I knew that you wrote about this and talked about this, I would have had no idea about anything related to the Salters Hall. But after you talked to me about it, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. It seems like really relevant. Well, thanks for having me on. So yeah, so I teach at Welch College in Gallatin, Tennessee. Um, I am the assistant professor of um, historical and systematic theology there, oversee the MA that we have in theology and ministry. I pastor Emanuel Church in Gallatin, Tennessee, and um, yeah, pastored there for five, uh, almost six years now, and then been at Welch for about the same amount of time. So, all right, so just a bit uh, on the Salters Hall controversy, um, kind of my my initial interest in it um I was interested in Trinitarian uh, debates in the late 17th century, uh, particularly one among the English General Baptists uh, with the Matthew Caffin controversy. And Greg Wills was my supervisor when I started my um, dissertation, and he recommended that I look at Salter's Hall. And I was somewhat familiar with it, and so I started looking into it more, and I, I began to think, you know, some of the things that I've seen prior to... Um, what I'm researching here, I don't think really tell the full story. So I, I kind of wanted to look into it more uh, and provide some nuance and texture to uh, the events that I didn't think existed in a lot of the secondary literature that was out there. So just kind of a, a basic breakdown. Um, beginning sometime in about 1716, 1717, uh, there is an issue in sort of the southwestern part of England in Exeter. Um, and um, it begins with James Pierce. Uh, and Joseph Hallett and uh, an academy that Joseph Hallett has and that he's running. Uh, there's some concern that the students in their academy have embraced heterodox views on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so there's a lot of debate among some of the lay persons there and some people involved uh, responsible for uh, some of the church buildings there. And so they question Pierce and Hallett and some of these ministers on their views on the doctrine of the Trinity 
uh, Pierce is pretty open that he holds something like uh, an Arian view of uh, of the person of Christ. And uh, so then there's some concern that goes over to England. I'm sorry, over over to England, over to London. Um, and so when you have the gathering of the the ministers at Salters Hall in 1719. Um, they actually are gathering to resolve a controversy, to deal with a controversy in another place. And what ultimately happens is they have a controversy of their own. Now, prior to this meeting and the, these meetings in 1719, I'll say more about that in just a moment. Um, prior to these meetings in 1719, um, someone familiar with the issue at Exeter appeals to some of the ministers in London, particularly to a man named William Tong. Uh, who's a Presbyterian, and he's a pastor of the congregation that meets at Salter's Hall. So that's kind of how the whole thing gets going there. And um, and they basically send some advice back to Walrond and and or, and say, hey, here is here is how we would deal with this if we were faced with this issue, which I find fascinating because here is Tong in. Uh, August of 1718 saying, if we were to have this issue, kind of implying that they don't currently have this issue in London, that they're not dealing with a lot of uh, heterodox um, ministers. But anyways, um, ultimately, there's some some things that are going on in the House of Commons. Uh, James Pierce is actually named as holding heterodox, uh, heterodox Christology. And um, they're on the verge of potentially repealing um, uh, the, um, I forget if it's the Schism Act or the Test Act of 1714. And so there's some concern that if they think these ministers hold heterodox views, that it's going to affect them politically. Um, and so, uh, there's a guy who puts forward a set of advices, uh, to a gathering of what's called, uh, the body of the three denominations. Um, and these three denominations consist, the three denominations gathered there are independents, Baptists, and Presbyterians, and the Baptists are obviously general and particular Baptists. So they gather first on uh, February 19th of 1719 to consider the advices. Um, on February 24th, they gather again, and they actually vote on whether or not they should include a recommendation that the, the ministers in Exeter be required to subscribe to uh, the first of the 39 articles, and then the answers to the fifth and sixth questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the majority there, 57 of the ministers gathered their vote against recommending subscription. And so the there's immediately concern about whether or not they're opposed to subscription to extra biblical words and phrases, or like consubstantial, or are they opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity itself? So they gather again on March 3rd, and it's brought back up. And uh, at that point, there's um, a lot of debate. Uh, something I meant to say a moment ago, there's this this little account uh, by a guy named Joseph Jekyll who says uh, at the February 24th meeting, the 53 to 57 vote, uh, his summation of what happened there was the Bible carried it by four. Uh, so they weren't going to include subscriptions so the Bible carried it by four, which is, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of humorous to me. Um, but at the March 3rd meeting, they actually split. And so the subscribers and the non-subscribers, which is the name that they um, is sort of attached to those in favor of subscription and those opposed to subscription, they separate and they don't meet together ever again. The subscribers meet on March the 9th um, to put together their advices to send to Exeter. The non-subscribers meet on March 10th to put together their advices to send to Exeter. 
Um, the non-subscriber send theirs on March 17th, and we actually that we have those in print. Um, and on April 17th, or I'm sorry, April 7th, I think it is, uh, the, the subscribers send their advices. But kind of what's fascinating about this is by the time their advices, both sets, by the time they actually get to Exeter with their recommendation of what should be done there, um, the two ministers, James Pierce and Joseph Hallett, have actually already been locked out of their buildings, uh, sort of removed from their, their pastorates. And so their advices actually don't have any effect on what happens at Exeter. But it creates this massive controversy among dissenting ministers in London. And so for the rest of 1719 into 1720, even into 1721 and 22, uh, there's all sorts of debate. And there's a lot of back and forth in print. Uh, There's basically kind of a pamphlet war. There are some long books that are written um, trying to deal with this issue. Do the non-subscribers reject the doctrine of the Trinity or do they oppose the requirement of subscription to words and phrases that are not in the Bible? And there are all sorts of accusations. Um, there are some significant ministers um, who refuse to be involved in the controversy because they don't think it's about the doctrine of the Trinity. They think it's just going to be this hot, divisive issue. So some of them abstain, including um, Edmund Calamy. And he basically says, this is not about the doctrine of the Trinity this is driven by personality and a, and a whole host of other things. Um, a particular Baptist minister, Edward Wallen, I think he assesses this situation. He's actually one of the subscribers. Um, but he doesn't think that the majority of the non-subscribers are opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity. He thinks they're opposed to the requirement of subscription. Um, so that's kind of a basic assessment of, of what happens. Um, and um, And so... I can say more about what I'm trying to accomplish in my dissertation, but go, I'll let you um, go from there and see what you have. Yeah. So Jesse, help me. I mean, as I think about this, best case scenario for the the non-subscribing group is to say that they want to affirm like a thin sort of biblicism where you can't do anything out like just anything outside the Bible legit is off limits. So you can't use terms like Trinity because it's not in the Bible, those sort of things. Versus the really bad case would be they're legit anti-Trinitarian. Is that the right way to think about it? Well, let me read to you quickly what they say. So um, in their advices that they send, they say, We add our earnest supplications that God would accompany them, that is the advices, with his blessing to establish peace and truth amongst us. And we freely declare that we utterly disown the Arian doctrine and sincerely believe the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity and the proper divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ which we apprehend to be clearly revealed in the Holy Scriptures, but are far from condemning any who appear to be with us in the main, though they should choose not to declare themselves in other than Scripture terms or not in ours. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. They denounce Arianism there. Um, one of the subscribers actually replies to that and says, you know, Arianism is is kind of dead and gone, although I'm, I'm not sure that I completely agree with that assessment. Um, but what he wants to know is what they believe about um, some new writings that have been influential at this time. So um, in 1712, Samuel Clark publishes his uh, Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, which he deals with just a host of texts, um, something like a thousand texts, um, looking at the Doctrine of the Trinity. And, um, and, and there are debates about what Clark's actual views are. Um, some think he holds something similar to Arianism. Um, around the same time, William Whiston 
um, who had actually been friends with Isaac Newton and had succeeded um, Newton uh, in his chair um, uh, that he had held at, what is it, Oxford or Cambridge. Um, he had published two works that are influential as well. One is Primitive Christianity Revived, and he's looking at historical views on the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church. The other is Athanasius Convicted of Forgery. And so he's dealing with some of these early church, um, I'm sorry, early Christian documents and, and asking, um, are, what does the early church believe on these things? Is, is an anti-Nicene view of the doctrine of the Trinity anti-Nicene is, you know, so, so they're taking all of these things into account. Um, I, I think um, one of the things that I try to look at and say is, you know, you can look back in the 17th century to someone like Richard Baxter and see that there is an orthodox opposition to the doctrine of, uh, of, of using extra biblical words and phrases to describe the doctrine of the Trinity. So Baxter wants to limit it to something like the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments as kind of like a confessional statement. Um, John Coffey, who was my external reader, um, one of the things he said I should look into more and, and I think is worth considering is there is something like this even among some Puritans um, where there is some hesitancy to use extra biblical words and phrases um, and, and certainly to require subscription to those. So I think there's an orthodox, I call it an orthodox non-subscribing tradition, but the concern for the subscribers is that opposition to subscription to extra biblical words and phrases is really just sort of a thinly veiled disguise to opposition to the doctrine of the Trinity itself. That's helpful. I mean, naturally, I'm a subscriptionist sort of guy. I mean, just looking out at the current landscape, there seems to be almost a revival of this sort of non-subscriptionist viewpoint. And I th- I mean, I think it makes sense. I get it for the people who are genuine and who would say, like, if we actually laid out our beliefs, we'd believe the same thing, except when it comes to using almost non-scriptural terms. I sort of understand, I think, the impulse. Is the impulse for them just, a, is it truly just a high reverence for the Bible, or or is it something else that's causing them to want to be non-subscriptionist from that viewpoint? Um, yeah, I, I think there are, there's a lot at play here. So um, when, when I look at Salter's Hall, um, I use, there's a taxonomy that I use to look at it, and it actually comes from uh, the writings of someone I mentioned earlier, John Walrand. And he he says basically there are three um, three kind of groups that we're dealing with. Now, he's actually writing about something different, not specifically about Salter's Hall, but I think this is, is true. Um, he kind of divides it as you have an orthodox group, a heterodox group, and then he calls them a middle sort. There's a middle sort. Um, I think the majority of the non-subscribers at Salter's Hall are the middle sort. They are they affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, um, a classical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, but they are concerned about using words and phrases that are not in the Bible, or at least requiring others to do um, to to subscribe to them. So, I mean, there's an example of this in the General Baptist tradition, and I think it's it's pertinent to Salter's Hall. Um, Thomas Grantham used would use the word um, Trinity, um, and he would use other words, and he reprinted the Nicene Creed in his Christianismus Primitivus, 
and, and some other creedal statements. But he was less hesitant to require, or he was more hesitant to require others to subscribe to those um, extra biblical words and phrases because they weren't in the Bible. Um, so I do think there is sort of this history in the 17th century among some of the Puritans, among, like Richard Baxter is an example, uh, Thomas Grantham would be another example, um, who might personally use extra biblical words and phrases, but were more hesitant to require others to do the same. Um, so I think that's the concern. Um, personally, I think at the beginning of the 18th century, especially in light of what you've seen um, at the end of the 17th century, but certainly going to the beginning of the 18th century, what you've seen in um, Samuel Clark's Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity and William Whiston and, and a host of others, I think it's naive to think that you can sort of maintain orthodoxy without clarity on what we believe. So, um, so one of the non or one of the subscribers, um, a Presbyterian by the name of John Cumming, um, he dealt a lot with what he would call scripture consequences, and he would say the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly taught in the Bible. You you can't point to a single passage where you know it's like the word Trinity is there, or you get something like the the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. You you won't find that, but it's clearly taught there. It's a clear consequence of Scripture. And he would go so far as to call the consequences of Scripture, uh, Scripture revelations. And so he would say, if this is what the Bible clearly teaches, and, and all we're trying to do in these confessions or in creeds is simply say, this is what we think the sense of the text is, uh, then we're not really going beyond Scripture to ask people to affirm the sense of the text. Uh, we're not satisfied with mere words. Uh, you know, all heretics everywhere always will always agree to the the literal words of the text. We want to know what the sense of the text is. Um, and so um, so I think that's what the subscribers were trying to to accomplish at Salter's Hall. Jake, Garrett, do you have any thoughts or ideas or questions at this point? I've got a, a question for you, Jesse, if you don't mind. Um do you think you mentioned kind of the transition out of the 17th century into the 18th century? Uh, you know, 1689, you have the Act of Toleration passed. Do you think some of the resistance to subscription would have been a fear of moving backwards into, um, uh, I guess, a, a place of intolerance in terms of speech used, and you've got to approve certain documents or use certain uh, statements in your personal? Um, I guess, religious expression or worship? Do you think there's any kind of like fear of kind of the pre-toleration days? Yeah, and that actually comes up in some of the non-subscribers' writings. They say like, hey, we, we just moved beyond this, and now um, we're trying to impose something on ourselves uh, that we just moved beyond. Like, we finally gotten beyond um, sort of this imposition that we experienced from the Church of England, and now we're going to go into imposing these things on ourselves. So yeah, it's like we've gained this freedom, and then now we want to sort of be um, perse persecute our, ourselves and require subscription. Um, so yeah, I think that's absolutely, um, absolutely a concern. Um, I didn't give you guys a breakdown of the the different groups gathered there. Let me do that real quick. I think that's that's helpful. Um, so let me say this. So the first um, time that they vote, the division uh, is 
as I said earlier, 53 and 57. 53 uh, um, in favor of, of subscription or requiring subscription. 57 uh, opposed to it, opposed to including that in the advices that they're going to send back to Exeter. Um, we don't know who the original 53 and 57 are. Um, in fact, we only have names from accounts of the events there. And the subscribers sort of publish their own account and the non-subscribers publish their own account. Um, and so we have a breakdown of those and the numbers are actually higher. So, and the subscribers account of what happened at Salter's Hole and then the names that are included there, uh, there are 78 total, 27 Presbyterians, three Scottish Presbyterians, 31 Congregationalists, one General Baptist, 11 particular Baptists, and five that we don't know, five uncertain. Um, among the non-subscribers, there, there is, uh, in their account, it's called an authentic account, there's 73 total, 49 English Presbyterians, zero Scottish Presbyterians, eight Congregationalists, 12 General Baptists, two particular Baptists, and two that we don't know. Um, so that gives you kind of a, a breakdown of um, those who are um, are kind of gathered there and, and where they tend to, to fall uh, on this issue. You got the hardy Scottish Presbyterians, Jake. Wh- Jake, what's coming to mind? What do you? What question do you have? Well, I have a few thoughts, and then I, I'd like to serve up a question. I think one, number one, one thing that's interesting that comes out of this is if you kind of because there's always a real debate about. In Baptist life at this point, what was the role of confessional subscription? What was how did that work in local churches and associations? And one of the interesting things that comes out as a result of the Salters Hall controversy is kind of the reconstitution of the Western Association where the Bristol Academy was, that's very influential in particular Baptist life, especially of the later later in the 18th century, but the association had contained general and particular Baptist churches, and I wanted to make sure that I got my, my names correct, and so it's through Bernard uh, Foskett and then one of the Stennett brothers that the association reconstitutes and requires the second London as the document you had to subscribe to to be a part of the association. So you have an example. Sometimes people may think that confessional subscription only exists among even the particular Baptists in that you know high point, so to speak, at the end of the 17th century when the General Assembly meets in London. But this is an example here outside of London where you've got real confessional subscription as a part of the basis for an association of churches. So I think that's an interesting response that you see from some particular Baptists is like, they saw what happened. We need to really move into a more, you know, narrow, firm declaration of what we believe as churches. So, yeah. Jake, I got a question for you on that. Do you think, okay. I, I don't know the answer to this. Do you think that those churches that join those associations on grounds of subscribing to the confession, is this maybe the the minister would have affirmed the confession, the congregation would have affirmed the confession? Like how how is how could you affirm the confession? I, I my gut would say that the primary pastor would be the one who's doing that. Maybe it's the entire congregation though. I don't know. Well, I 
there's a sense in which you, you would suspect that it's going to be the pastor, but if we're drilling down into Baptist ecclesiology, an association is not an association of pastors. An association is an association of churches. The pastor may come and he may, he, he may you know, goes, he dies or whatever, but that church is still going to be in that association. So it has to be, the church as a whole has to be saying, we own this um, confession. It's not just what the, the pastor's personal preference is. Um, that would be that. That would be what my instinct would tell me is you know how this was working at that point. I still think that's how associations should operate. All right. Now my next question, I'm going to throw one to Jesse here. Is as I as as I'm sitting here as a Baptist and I'm hearing about this Salter's Hall gathering, we, we have non-Baptist groups here. So two parts. Number one, do you think in any way that is maybe a source of some of the issues with this gathering is that it, you know, transcended what we would say denominational lines. And then number two, is this an early example of an evangelical, uh, pan-evangelical gathering? Uh, we're, we're trying to be, quote-unquote, together for the gospel. Is this kind of an early example of that here? I think you see something of that um among general and particular Baptists already in the beginning of the 18th century. I think in this particular setting of the the body of uh, th- these three denominations, and, and that is what it's considered, although there, I guess, if we were to divide general and particular, we might say there are four, um, but they, they see them as three, the Baptists, the Independents, and the Presbyterians. Um, I, I think primarily they're trying to deal with some issues that they're facing uh, politically and otherwise in London and, and in the surrounding areas. So I do think they're working together um, um, in, in that way. So sure. So I mean, in that sense, it's it's pan-denominational. I, I do think that sometimes we think things are more neatly divided than they are. Um, so in in my dissertation, I, ta- I have a, a, a short section, um, and I think I included in the chapter that I have in the Regent's Park um, book on the Salters Hall controversy, on Benjamin Stinton. And there's a lot of overlap, especially between the general and the particular Baptists um, in the in the early um, 18th century, particularly through, specifically through Benjamin Stinton and some others. There, there is sort of a, a, a lot of overlap. Um, is this, did you, what did you say? Is this an early example of Together for the Gospel or something? What'd you say? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't seen enough to to really say ex- exactly, but I mean, they clearly are working together. Uh, there, there is clearly sort of a common cause here, and it's interesting that you see um, here that um, you have a division of twenty seven Presbyterians as subscribers, forty nine as non subscribers. So they actually split. <laughs> so they don't even stick together. So if think about that, you have a division of subscribers and non subscribers. It's not even strictly along denominational lines per se. Um, it's along a certain understanding of what they think is happening and ought to occur here. Um, so that's kind of fascinating. It's not as if all the Presbyterians go one way, all of the Baptists, general or particular, go one way or the other. Um, although the majority of like particular general Baptists, they certainly do. Um, but, but there's a lot of overlap. Um, so um, there, there's, there's something there where there does seem to be some redrawing of lines. There, there is a bit of overlap between Presbyterians and Congregationalists as well. So I think if you were to look at a history of dissenting academies in the 18th century, especially as you get into the 1730s and 40s and 50s, um, uh, 
I think of someone like Philip Doddridge, where you have a lot of Presbyterians are educated in Congregationalist uh, dissenting academies. So th- there is a lot of overlap. I would say it's maybe maybe somewhat less common among Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists than it would be for maybe Presbyterians and Congregationalists. Um, but th- there certainly is a, a significant amount of, of overlap here in this sense. Well, I, I know one thing my, 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 uh, my old landmark heart would say, um, would, would use this uh, situation and say, this is what happens when you engage in a mixed multitude. You know, look what comes out of the Salters Hall controversy, and that's why we stay uh, within the walls of our church. However, I'm going to throw a softball up to Jesse now because he and I have had this discussion a few times. So usually the narrative that gets sown in Baptist history is the Salters Hall controversy is essentially is what drives the general Baptist movement into, you know, Arianism, Unitarianism, and it basically, you know, that's all general Baptists essentially became non-Trinitarian. So number one, is that true? And number two, how do later general Baptists, let's say somebody like Dan Taylor, how do they look back at the Salters Hall controversy and situation? And what's their interpretation of what happened there? I do think later in the 18th century, there are issues, obviously, among the general Baptists on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um my contention in looking, sort of my conclusion from looking at the Salters Hall controversy is, uh, let me make a broader statement and then I'll apply it to the General Baptist as well. Um, I genuinely think that the majority of the non-subscribers, and, and I, I try to make it, and I think I make a really strong case for this, the majority of the non-subscribers at Salters Hall do indeed affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, a classical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, they are primarily concerned about the use of extra biblical words and phrases and and requiring people to subscribe to words that aren't found in the Bible. Um, and I think you can look at the writings of a, a number of non-subscribers and see some of them very explicitly uh, affirm uh, a classical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. However, there are a handful, and I think there are only a handful of out-and-out anti-Trinitarians. And that's if you follow their theology, let's say, for a few decades afterwards. So there may not even be any writings from some of the non-subscribers who end up affirming something like a heretical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity at the time of Salter's Hall, and sometimes not even within a decade or two. Sometimes it's three or more decades afterwards uh, they they publish uh, non-Trinitarian or anti-Trinitarian writings. So I genuinely think that the majority of the non-subscribers are... Uh, that middle sort, they um, they are they affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, but they're hesitant about extra biblical words and phrases. I think there's a history of that among the General Baptists, and I think you can find it most clearly in Thomas Grantham. I think one of the questions you have to ask is how long can you maintain that? Um, and I would say that would be one of uh, one of the significant issues that I wonder if it doesn't affect the General Baptist. So, um, thinking about the Caffin controversy in the 17th century. Um, so, for your listeners maybe who aren't familiar with it, uh, Matthew Caffin, General Baptist pastor, um, seems to hold some sort of heterodox Christology. Something he believes um, 
there are all sorts of <laughs> debates about about what he believes. Um, but but a heterodox Christology. And the General Assembly of General Baptists deals with this issue for like three decades. And they even revise the Confession of Faith uh, to try to address um, what's said about Caffin and his heterodoxy. And even when they make very clear statements, very clear, I think, biblical statements about the doctrine of the Trinity, Caffin still subscribes to the Confession. So that's an interesting question in and of itself. Uh, of how you deal with that. And by the way, Arian subscription is um, sort of a hot issue in the 18th century as well. It's like, it sort of feels like the 20th century, right? Uh, and some of the controversies that the SBC maybe experienced is like, what if you have an Orthodox confession of faith and people still subscribe it? And they, and they do like in their own understanding of it. So can that really solve all of these things? Um, but before I forget, I did want to say about the Presbyterians, you know, sometimes we assume that they're all subscribing to the Westminster Confession, like they're all signing their name on it. Um, I think David Wicks, Wikes, I never know how to pronounce it. I think he's called this into question, and there are probably some others who, who have um, done this as well. But one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at some of these individuals involved in the Salter Saul controversy um, among the Presbyterians is that at their ordination, um, and sometimes the uh, a statement of faith or a confession of faith would be included. And it wasn't the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was something they had written. They had written their own confession of faith. And sometimes it, it followed Westminster, but it wasn't verbatim. And sometimes maybe in important places, it differed, uh, even on issues of the doctrine of the Trinity. But um, to, to get back to the General Baptist, um, I do think there's a genuine sort of non-subscribing tradition that you find in Thomas Grantham, a hesitancy uh, to use or at least to require others to subscribe to extra biblical words and phrases. I think the Midlands General Baptists and Thomas Monk and an Orthodox Creed and all of that, you see very clear creedal language um, using words like coessential and consubstantial and they're more inclined to use creedal language in dealing with the issue with Matthew Caffin. The General Assembly was less inclined to do so. And I think that's actually why you have the split of the General Assembly and the General Association, uh, the development of the General Association at the end of the 17th century, is because you almost have these two streams uh, of, of how to deal with these issues. They do come back together later uh, for periods of time on multiple occasions, um, and that's a whole thing in and of itself. Um I haven't read a ton of Dan Taylor, but um, but I do think Dan Taylor looks back the the decades prior to his ministry and sees it as a decline, a theological decline among the English General Baptists. Um, what I'm what I would like to say, and kind of part of the conversation maybe that you and I have had in, in some other occasions, is sometimes the narrative for the General Baptists is. Okay, you have John Smith, and he holds a heterodox Christology. You have the Caffin controversy uh, in uh, in the second half of this, the 17th century, and then you have the Salters Hall controversy. And look, twelve of the General Baptists gathered there. The thirteen there are non-subscribers. So here's like the final step in their sort of becoming uh, anti-Trinitarians. I, I just don't think it's that simple. And you can find so many Orthodox. General Baptists in the 17th century and in the beginning of the 18th century. So that's not to say there aren't issues and, um, and and that maybe things couldn't have been dealt with better. And maybe some of the ways they dealt with uh, theological controversy maybe were a bit um, optimistic or even naive. Um, I, I think the non-subscribing position at Salters Hall at this point in the 18th century 
is naive. I, I, I don't think um, I don't think it's something that can be maintained at this point um, in history in, in, in England. There, there's just too much that's happened. Uh, we need clarity, not only that people affirm the Bible, but the actual sense of the text. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think that by 1719, all the General Baptists uh, have embraced heterodoxy. And, and I don't think a, a really strong case can be made for that. Um, so that's that's really my primary concern, is that we create this decline narrative, especially for uh, the English General Baptist, that I think is way too simple. Um, if that is the case, then tell me why someone who is orthodox, like Benjamin Stinton, is interacting so much with General Baptists. Um, some of the particular Baptist non-subscribers, one of them uh, in particular, uh, is immediately involved within a couple of years after Salter's Hall with John Gill. And so if he's heterodox, then why, why would someone so theologically orthodox like John Gill be interacting with him? And it may be that he renounced his position. It may be that he, after that, said, hey, um, I made the wrong decision at the Salter's Hall controversy. All of that to say, um, I just think we tend to oversimplify these matters. And I think Salter's Hall has been oversimplified. Um and I, there's just always so much more complexity. And I think when you begin to look at the relationships and the interactions that people are having, those simplistic interpretations really don't hold up. It's really only in retrospect that I think that you get some of those oversimplified um, interpretations. And I, I don't think they really hold up to scrutiny. Okay, Jesse. So based upon what you just said here for this, you know, I was taught by Tom Nettles, Baptist History and at Southern. And one of his... I mean, main takes, I think, on this idea between the particular and general Baptists as time went on was that confessional subscription really is the antidote to drifting into unorthodoxy. So if you don't have it, you will go there pretty much guaranteed. If you do have it, it will protect you. So my question is, at least related to Salter's Hall, as you think about it, do you think that confessional subscription is either a necessary to remain orthodox or at least is um, will protect you from going into unorthodoxy? I mean, how important really is it? And is it truly going to actually save you or not? I think that confessional subscription, if we have a clear confession of faith on especially these, especially these first tier issues, I think it can play an important part in maintaining theological orthodoxy, but it can't ensure it. You know, I mean, there, it, it's never a guarantee. So you have Arian subscribers within the Church of England in the early 18th century, and you have Presbyterians who, it would be hard to have a more detailed confession uh, than the Presbyterians have. Of course, the question is, were they, how were they um, sort of enforcing that? I mean, I, that's something I brought up a moment ago. Um, I think when we think about confessional subscription, we have to always remind ourselves it's no guarantee of orthodoxy, but I do think it goes a long ways in stating what our sense of the text is and identifying with um, the early Christian councils and creeds on our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, being clear about that, and then making it clear to ministers and to congregations what our beliefs and our expectations are. Um, but at the end of the day, I, you know, I don't think confessional subscription can ever just guarantee um, orthodoxy. But I do think it is is, is an, a very important component. 
Jake or Garrett, any words of wisdom to add at this point? I think that really, even in our current context, this is why, I mean, let's just be blunt, vanilla statements don't suffice. Confessions, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. They just don't suffice. Sorry, man. I had to test. Well, it I appreciate out. the applause. Um, you know, but they don't. If if you really if you if you believe that a confession is to you know is to be positive, it disciples, it equips, it trains, it does all of those things. But it's also has a defensive. It has an offensive and a defensive purpose. And the defensive purpose is that we guard against heresy heterodoxy, etc., against error, then you have to have something that is, uh, that everybody knows what it means. You know, a confession is not supposed to be elastic. If that's, if that's your purpose, then in some ways I think it's even, it's pointless to have one. You know, just everybody just say, we, we believe the Bible, we love Jesus, you know, move on. Um, don't go through the charade of saying we're confessional, but it you know it doesn't really mean anything. And I think in some ways I, I know that some contend that Baptists historically, you know, listening to Jesse talk about Presbyterians, you know, writing their own confession and their ordination. And look, I, I love you know Andrew Fuller, William Carey. I love all those men, um, but that that don't think they're perfect. And I think if there's one uh, sh- shortcoming that 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 generation had, one of their practices was you know, writing their own confession of faith for for ordination, and there not being an actual real subscription to something like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Because those men, I mean, Fuller and them were were orthodox, they were sound, but you don't know what the next generation is going to be. And that's where confessional standards actually matter. And, you know, we talked earlier, you've got to all understand what it means. And that's the the story here at, at Southern Seminary. You know, every professor is to sign their affirmation of the abstract. What happened over time was where people signed it with, you know, exceptions or reservations and so forth. Well, that was in clear contradiction to what's in the actual charter of the school, which said that no professor was allowed to teach at the school if they had exceptions or disagreements with the confession of faith. And so I think that we want to be careful uh, I think I've heard the expression used before, we don't want to have uh, paper popes, you know, in, in the form of, of confessions and creeds. And I and I get that sentiment to a degree, but when we are talking about Baptist as nonconformist, we meant that in the sense that we will reject outright as unbiblical any means or manner or way that the state tries to run religion and enforce our beliefs and our practices. We will not conform in that. However, though... They did believe that inside the four walls of that church, and then in an association of churches, there was conformity. You know, it wasn't a free-for-all. Now, I know some people, you know, like to paint it that way, but it wasn't. There was an expectation of what we believe, and that was rooted in confessions of faith. And my last thing that I'll say is, I think this is a place where the American Baptist got it right. If you trace out the history of the Philadelphia Association and its hundred first hundred years, and I'd say even longer than that, and the influence that it has in the South as you come to Charleston and it moves, 
there was a real understanding of being a confessional association and confessional churches. And Greg Wills traces this out in Democratic Religion and other resources that, you know, if a church strayed from the confession of faith, they were kicked out. You know, that's how serious it was. And if you wanted to join an association, you had to provide and say, what is your statement of faith? What do you believe and how do you carry that out in the form of a church covenant? So I know sometimes if I, if I can be an American, you know, patriot here for, for just a moment, it's easy for us in our context that we all look at the, the British Baptist and, um, you know, that they got everything right and they did get a lot right. But I think the Philadelphia Association modeled a lot better and a lot longer what actual confessional Baptist associationalism looks like. And I think there's a lot to learn from them. You know, I'm quite impressed at Jake's ability to stay focused despite my antics. Well, you know, that come, that come, hey, look, you have to remember, I have preached under a tent and a lot of things were happening and I had to stay somewhat on point. It wasn't, you know, I was actually preaching the Bible, but so I have some experience with things going on and, you know, you just stay focused. So for everyone who's playing Jake Stone bingo, you've got Landmark already on your card and Tent Preaching on your card. So you, you got to be getting pretty close. Um, yeah, I, th- I think this is wonderful. Let me, let me ask um, uh, a question real quick for, for Jesse. Coming back to the Salters Hall uh, and the confessionalism thing, do you think some of the resistance to subscription and using extra biblical words and phrases had anything to do with the rise of rationalism and maybe a resistance to uh, traditional terminology um, that couldn't be necessarily maybe, maybe empirically is not the right word, but uh, rationally demonstrated. Um, If you read, is it, um, is it Philip Dixon has that, fantastic little book on it's what's a great title it's called nice and hot disputes um if you read that he talks about the doctrine of the trinity in the 17th century and he is dealing some with i guess what we might call the influence of rationalism and a lot of the conversation centers on um a changing understanding of the concept of person and that's pretty important for thinking about the doctrine of the trinity so um do I think that could have been influential in the decades leading up to Salter's Hall? Absolutely. I think for some of the anti-Trinitarians, I think a, a lot of those conversations uh, are important. Um, uh, one of the, no, of the non-subscribers that um, becomes an anti-Trinitarian actually goes into full-blown Socinianism. So he, um, he, he doesn't even go for Arianism. He just, he just goes the whole way over um, so yeah, I mean, I think those ideas are, are influential. Um, and I think honestly, after the Salters Hall controversy, um, some of the secondary sources talk about this, some, um, after the Salters Hall controversy, I think some ministers who hadn't even read Samuel Clark's scripture doctrine of the Trinity or William Whiston's, uh, primitive Christianity revived or Athanasius convicted of forgery or some of his other works, um, took them up and really considered them. Um, and I think you see the influence of that in the decades that uh, that follow. To go back to something Jacob said, uh, said a moment ago, um, I do think if, we have, if we're going to ask ourselves or consider subscription, let's say specifically among Baptists, um, what, are the, what are the means for um, a genuine sort of subscriptionism? And how would we maintain that? 
Um, if, if you never interact with other churches uh, in something like an association, if there never is any accountability in an association uh, or something like that, and you just kind of see people in slapbacks once, once a year at the annual meeting, um, it, how, how do you maintain that? You know, where, where's the accountability? Is it just the, is it just the congregation holding the minister accountable or are there other churches holding that congregation and that minister accountable? One of the things that, um, that free will Baptists do, which is the denomination that, uh, that I'm a part of is we bring ministers in to assist other congregations in examining the, the theology of prospective ministers so if a, if a minister is going to um, be ordained as a minister in a congregation, in an association, he actually has to go before a gathering of ministers in that association to be examined by those ministers and then sort of recommended back to the church. Now, it's the church who does the ordaining. It's the church that sele- selects the minister. But in some sense, they have um, invited these other congregations and their pastors to be involved in examining the theology of that minister. So I just think that's one one way you can think about maintaining orthodoxy um, with something like confessional standards or subscription and how an association would fit into that. I, I don't see how you maintain orthodoxy with subscription um, beyond something like an associationalism or, or, or some sort of uh, interaction between congregations uh, among Baptists. Obviously, other denominations have other ways of dealing with these things. Uh, but it seems like associationalism is just an essential component that due to, I was saying this to Jake and someone else the other day, due to um, the church growth movement um, and every church kind of becoming their own 2,000-member church and because of fundamentalism. And I would say the influence of of the independent Baptists in some ways in, in the 20th century We've kind of all just become our own isolated little churches uh, and have done away with associationalism. Um, that's true among some free will Baptists, but I'm sure it's true among Southern Baptists and other Baptists as well. Not following the example that you find among the particular Baptists, but like Jake mentioned, especially among the Philadelphia Association in America, um, we've just kind of become our own entities. How, how, will we, how would we even maintain orthodoxy like that? It's not possible. I think we really have to revive associationalism. I don't. I, I don't really have a lot more to add. I, I agree with all that, and I would say that's why I think you know we had the conversation in one of the Hanover House episodes with Sam Renahan and talked about these things. That's why I I don't believe, and I know that I'm not carrying the party line here when I say this, but I I don't believe that Baptist polity in this way can work at some large in a large manner geographically it has to be in such a way as where it's actually churches you you know each other you're invested in each other and, and look i'll say this too think about everything we're talking about these confessions of faith these, the catechisms you know the missionary movement of william carey and so forth all those things were born out of associational work it wasn't just you know one person that you know was smart and knew everything and you know, people just kind of picked that up and, and ran with it. It was a collaborative effort. And and I think that, you know, in some ways, now if I can kind of, I know I praised America, now I guess I'll critique it here for a minute. You know, we have such a hyper, you know, libertarian, independent mindset, you know, where it's, you know, my four, no more, 
you know, don't tell me what to do. You know, it, it's almost revolting. People would say, a ch- people could tell our church, you know, we were wrong. You know, how dare they? We, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. Well, yeah, we do, but that doesn't mean you're right about everything. And uh, we have to understand that we have an invested interest in one another. And so I think that this is an aspect still of, of Baptist polity that needs to be recovered. And I'll just be frank, we're very scared of it um, in a lot of ways because we kind of feel like we may lose some power and we don't want to, we don't want to give that up. And I think that we would though, learn a lot of good lessons from these men, from that which has gone before us, about how important connectionalism is. They did believe in independence of the churches, but they also believed in interdependence as well. So, Jesse, can I ask you another question about this? Um, So, I think we're probably all pretty excited about confessionalism and subscribing to things and that sort of thing. So, not averse to that at all. And there's something really awesome about affirming a historic confession. Um, do you, but you mentioned they, uh, the, the general Baptists modified their confessions to accommodate some of the issues going on with Matthew Caffin. Do you think we should be flexible to update confessions? If, if a new confession were to arise for, for Baptists in the 21st century in a post COVID world, like personally, I think I would feel a little bit skittish of that. Uh, it's, it feels too, it feels too recent or too modern or, um, you know, there's some, there's a beauty to a, a statement that's, that has withstood the test of time, uh, like the second London confession or like the Nicene Creed or those sorts of things. Do you think we should be writing new confessions? Should we be updating or modifying or tweaking, taking some things out, adding some new things in? What's your take on that? In terms of preserving orthodoxy, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the question: is what are what are we changing and what are we editing and things like that. Of course, when um, when you have the Savoy or when you have Westminster or when you have Second London or when you have a Brief Confession or um, uh, an Orthodox Creed or whatever, um, they were writing those at the time. So, I mean, there there is a time when obviously when they're contemporary, right? Um, unless we go back to just something like the Apostles Creed or the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed or or something like that, um, but even then the the point would be the same. Um, I, I mean, I think it matters what we're changing. What are we editing, um, and for what purposes? Um, and it's not just Baptists. You, you can think about all the editions uh, in various places of Westminster, right? Uh, in the American context or, or or elsewhere. So obviously, people edit confessions of faith. Um, I think there has to be a certain level of flexibility to deal with issues. Um, certainly there's an impulse behind, let's just call it conservatism as an idea, not, not a political ideology, but an idea uh, that is hesitant to change things. I think we should be hesitant to change things. I think we should have that sort of conservatism. Um, so we're not looking to just address every issue and change things all the time. It's like the guy that feels like he has to talk about every issue, social issue, political issue, whatever on Twitter. Like, no, you don't have, you don't have to do that. Um, I don't think we should be editing confessions and and things all the time, but there may be some things that we have to deal with. And so to go back to the example of the general Baptist, um, they were trying to, to shore up some language on, um, on Christ's relationship to, uh, as being a descendant of David, um, and, uh, his, what exactly is happening, um, there in the incarnation. And so, 
Uh, there's some language that they're trying to change to sort of exclude the position that has been attributed to Matthew Kaffin. Of course, he still subscribes, so it, it doesn't really uh, doesn't really work. But I think in situations like that, if if we can improve, and let's say we're drawing on the confessional or creedal language from the early church, uh, then I would say by all means. But that that would certainly be um, something abnormal and not the norm. We're not constantly uh, changing things. You know, there, I also think there's something to take into account as well. And we're, we're not just interested in things because they are old. Um, we're, we're not just, we're not interested in repristination. We don't want to just take the 17th century and bring it forward into the 21st century. But there is something very valuable in, like you said, in thinking about the fact that these things have stood the test of time. They've stood the test of um, of several centuries. So I, I do think that's significant. And if we're thinking about the early church creeds, then, you know, um, 1700 uh, or so years. So I do think that's important. Yeah. All right. Does anyone have any last words before we wrap up? I want to give you one fun little tidbit that I did mention earlier. And that is that at Salters Hall, there was a guy named John Condor who actually managed to be a subscriber and a non-subscriber. He actually signed on both sides. So I, I don't know what that says about this guy. Um, there are actually some works written in response to him. Um, one of them, I, I can't even remember. Um, let's see. Oh, a letter to the Reverend Mr. John Condor on his signing on both sides. So um, I, I don't know. Maybe he was one of those guys who just couldn't stake out a position. But, uh, but I, I find that fascinating. Sounds like a squishy moderate. He could have just been a non-subscriber, though, according to the standard narrative, and he could have accomplished that. Well, I'm sure there's all sorts of psychological analysis you could do on someone like that. So I think that's pretty interesting. But I, I, before we close, I want to remind all of our listeners, if, you, if you're listening here, you found this really interesting, which I'm sure you did, especially if you made it all the way to the end. So there's a couple of things you can do. First, Jesse's dissertation, it's online, it's available. So you could search Jesse Owens and search Salter's Hall with it. And it should pop up there as probably the first source. I think Garrett did it just before the show and found it right there. You can read it there for free. Uh, but also, Jesse, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's probably going to be continuing to do more research and writing and work on these areas. When those things come out and, the, and they're made available, if, if he does continue to do this, which I hope he does, uh, we'll let you know because I think these things are really, really valuable. I mean, these resources are, yes, they're historical. Yes, they are academic research, but clearly these have real-world implications and can help solve pastoral problems within your own local churches. And beyond that, I mean, Jesse, he's, he's just awesome. So read all the stuff that Jesse writes, whether that's, he's, he's got his own, I think it's the, what, the Hellies Center, or I can't remember the name of it, so I'm sorry for butchering it. I'll put it in the notes so people can go check it out. But he does a lot of writing and everything. Check out his stuff. I mean, it, it's really good. That's why he's one of our fellows. And he really models the exact sort of thinker that we want to promote. He's careful. He's kind. He's, he's, he's rigorous. He's, he, he's just really good. On, on all aspects with that. He's, he's both a pastor and professor. I mean, he's, he's modeling these sorts of intellectual engagement that we, we hope to encourage and promote here at the London Lyceum. So for those who've been listening, read his stuff. I'll link to as much of it as I can. I'll, I'll, we'll make sure to promote it as it comes out, as he continues to research and write. Now, for everybody who's been listening, you know this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you guys for tuning in.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.